This is Everything Happens. I'm Kate Bowler. I lived a pretty shiny life, but lately, not so much. On one level, everything is perfect. I married my high school sweetheart. I'm the mom of an amazing little boy. I have my dream job as a professor at Duke Divinity School, where I am a historian of North American religion. Okay, maybe not everyone's dream, but it was my dream. Perfect, right? Except that life has been hard. At 35, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. There was no history of cancer in my family, and then poof, there I was, trying not to die. I was watching my son learn to walk and trying to keep him away from the toxic chemotherapy bag attached to my waist. This podcast is about those times when you realize that your life does not look great on Instagram. It's about trying to figure out how to be a human being in a world that loves you more when you are shiny and whole and what you learn when you aren't. So I know this may sound difficult or depressing and you're thinking, please let me get away from this now, but hold on. In this series, I have conversations with some wonderful and sometimes hilarious guests who've made it through their own terrible times and who have interesting and surprising and even funny things to tell us about how to make it through the dark. I've learned a lot on my own journey and I'm still learning in part through these conversations. And one quality I've come to really appreciate during this time is frankness. Another is openness, the willingness to meet other people's troubles head on. My guest today, Nadia Bowles-Weber, is famous for both. She doesn't mince words when dealing with life's hard stuff. Nadia Bowles-Weber is a New York Times bestselling author of books including Pastrix and Accidental Saints. She's a speaker and a mom, church founder, CrossFit athlete, yoga enthusiast, a comedian, and we'll definitely get to that later. She's also very famous for her cool tattoos and her foul language, which I find endearing. She's a minister, but she doesn't just preach to the bright, shiny, well-dressed people. Instead, she seeks out, I guess, everyone else. Nadia is annoyingly cool for being a Lutheran pastor, a tradition we should all equate with casseroles and Swedish people in the Midwest. Nadia, I'm so grateful you could make time for this today. Oh, thanks so much. So I have to admit that you're the kind of person that I always want to tell all of my horrible problems to. <laughs> like, like not the fun secrets, like the genuinely awful stuff. Oh, that that might be the nicest thing anyone's <laughs> ever said to me. <laughs> I love that. Do you get that a lot? I do. Yeah. Is that like a skill you've nurtured over the years? Well, no, I just think I'm such an obviously horrible person (laughs) that people are like, boy, that bar is pretty low, you know? (laughs) So uh, how how bad could my stuff be? Might as well just fess up. Well, it's it's also like, you know, I take people's private confession and absolution and this one woman after she went through the whole process and the thing she confessed was juicy, whereas usually people <laughs> confess stuff that I'm like, look, you know, nothing personal, but I'm unimpressed with your sin. Like you should probably go out and try harder. But she, she confessed something nice and juicy. And then when she was relaxed and kind of laughing at the end, she goes, I'm so glad you're my pastor because I just... I just know that you've done much worse than that. <laughs> I, well, I, I've thought a lot about the kind of person that you want to tell your horrible stuff to. And 
when I read your book, I, I kind of wondered if a lot of what set you on your present path was that first church who was really church to you. Do you mind telling us a bit about the rowing club, as you called them? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, as somebody in recovery, it's just hard to do on your own. You know, you have to do it with a, with a group of other people who are messed up in the same way you are, but have found some light, you know, yeah. in their darkness. And so, you know, sitting in those rooms and 12-step meetings, you just sort of, um, I don't know, there's there's a particular type of hope that only comes from being in the midst of people who've really suffered and who have suffered at their own hand and can be just completely and totally honest about that, you know? I mean, there's so much more hope to be found there than to be found in people who their project is being as good as they can. I don't know how to say that. but Paring down their kitchen. Or, I mean, I hear a lot of people's (laughs) dreams and their dreams seem really Instagram-y. Yeah, yeah. My dream is to take a yoga class where I don't get angry. (laughs) (laughs) I like I like, I like thinking of you as bringing rage to hobbies that don't necessarily elicit rage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yoga makes me, there's always a point, you know, and it's always a 20-year-old in $100 yoga pants who's <laughs> teaching Amber. the class. Oh, yeah. she's doing great. Who, who will keep me in horrible, uncomfortable positions for, like, really... <laughs> purgatorial amounts of time until I start grimacing and she's like we learned so much about ourselves on the mat you know I'm like I learned I hate you exactly yeah so you cultivated though I mean I think part of what I immediately loved about you was that you tend to cultivate the company of others who get that suffering who get that outsider-ness and I um are those people from your first church still kind of your template for those that you want to surround yourself with? Yeah, in a way. I mean, there are ways in which, like, my congregation looks like two different communities I was a part of before I started the church in a way I wasn't aware of until after the church had been going for a few years. And one of them definitely is, you know, 12-step community in terms of truth-telling. You know, I I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these 12-step programs are, are held in churches and I'm like man people are people are speaking honestly about their lives and are connecting to God and to one another so much more frequently in church basements than in church sanctuaries and so I think House for All Sinners and Saints the congregation that I've served uh, for 10 years that I'm the founder of is a little more church basement-y than church (laughs) sanctuary-y in that Mm -hmm. this like like stark honesty about ourselves and our lives in the world that is spoken in that room. And then the other one is this, oddly, this Unitarian summer camp that I worked at for five years uh, in my early 20s. And it was was just such a profoundly accepting place. And Mm -hmm. it was the first time that it felt like being me was a good thing instead of a problem and uh I showed up you know there on staff and I was like celebrated like people are like you're awesome (laughs) I'm like I don't get that reaction much (laughs) you know and and being in a space where I felt accepted and even celebrated 
man, it, it allowed me to relax into myself in a way that, that felt holy, you know? Mm-hmm. And and so I think that's one of the things people end up saying about the congregation is they're like, you're just, people are just accepted. You just mm-hmm. walk in the door, you can relax, you know? Um, so it, I think that my congregation ended up being this weird combination of these two communities that uh, affected me so profoundly. Wow. And remind me again, why were they called the Rowing Club? Why did you call them that again? Well, it's because there's this sense of like, we're this like rowboat of idiots who are just (laughs) (laughs) doing as best we can. And like when one of us jumps ship, everybody else has to paddle harder. And, you know, it really had to do with my friend uh, PJ committing suicide. And he was... He was a fellow stand-up comic and a member of the rowing team, this uh, 12-step meeting I went to. And when PJ died, it felt like all of us had to row harder Mm. because there wasn't a lot separating us from PJ, and he had been doing some of the rowing for us, you know? And I actually think of faith that way in in a sense as well. Like, I've been known to say that faith is a team sport, not an individual competition, and that, like, uh, we we hold the faith on each other's behalf. So like when I can't believe somebody else is believing for me and vice versa, you know, sometimes we're the ones being lowered through the roof to Jesus. And sometimes we're the ones doing the lowering, you know, and I just think of it collectively in that sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I loved your writing about how you really became a pastor in those moments, a pastor to that particular beautiful community at a funeral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never meant to be a pastor. I mean, nobody had met me and thought, you should go to seminary, you know. But it was the fact that, you know, PJ died and my friends just looked at me and they were like, well, you can do the funeral, right? Hmm. I wasn't in seminary at this point. It was just, I was the only religious one in my friend group, you know. And then I was standing there looking out. It was at the Comedy Works in downtown Denver and it was just packed with queers and academics and comics and recovering alcoholics and I was giving PJ's eulogy and I just looked and I thought they don't they don't have a pastor Mm. and then my next thought was oh shit (laughs) uh uh I think that might be me. What? What? So it it really, my call, you know, quote, call to ministry yeah. is like really particular. It's not generic in any or general. It was really particular. And it seemed like it came about in this really unvarnished way. I, I wonder, I mean, I wonder if you still, when you're doing funerals now, if you ever do any of the same things you did in that first moment, if there's like a something you discovered about how to do that hard work that just felt like it fit? Well, yeah, I guess I never thought about that. I've only done a couple of funerals. We don't really have elderly people in my congregation, so to speak. Like my parents, I think, (laughs) might be the oldest people in the church in their 70s. Um, So I've only done a few funerals in 10 years of being a pastor. I think I've done three. So it's not a huge part of my pastoral practice. But I think just in terms of being unafraid to speak the truth, you don't have to make up things. You know, you can just speak the truth. Because if you do that about somebody, both the sort of good and bad, then there's going to be hope and humor and grace in it. 
You know, I, I like to say nothing's ever only one thing. Mm-hmm. And like people are never only one thing. So I think even in death, you know, we yeah. can tell the whole truth and it's okay. So there's more hope to yeah. be found in this sort of both this and this thinking yeah. than the this or this thinking. So both and rather than either or. You know, weirdly enough, that was my favorite part of the Tina Fey memoir, right? Mm-hmm. Is when she said the best thing she learned from comedy was the... Like the yes and. Yes and. And, yeah. you know, I really found that like the worse my life gets, the more I really revel in the absurd humor of life. Oh, my Does gosh. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. I yeah. mean, before you were a pastor, you were a stand-up comedian. And I love that um, line in your, um, I think it's in Pastrix about how you learned honesty in these green rooms of uh, comedy shows, but it was a kind of emotional Darwinianism. Like yeah. People say the <laughs> truth, but they're like eating each other alive. Right. I wonder, though, if you found a comedy that actually helps in dark times. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, that's why, like super happy people who haven't had much suffering and don't have unusual brain chemistries usually aren't that funny. No. No, I feel like I know a world of girls named Caitlin, and their lives are going great, but they're not the funniest people <laughs> They're not I know. particularly funny. No. Yeah. no, I mean, it is this sort of interesting survival mechanism that we have as a species, mm-hmm. you know, because interesting thing about laughter and humor is there's a brain chemistry element to it, mm-hmm. you know? So it's a bit of a reset button for our brain chemistry if we can laugh. So it doesn't, it keeps us from getting pulled under too deeply. You know, it's like, that's how you come up for air, you know? So the other thing that I think it's important to note about humor is it's never funny to talk about it. No, No. (laughs) there's no way to make (laughs) it. There is no way when discussing humor, you know, it's like, it's like when somebody has to explain a joke. Also, um, I feel like in some way, this is bizarrely related to when you see on someone's social media profile that they say they like to have fun. (laughs) You know, uh, you're like, you can be guaranteed that they're not actually a very fun person to hang out with. It's no. that they see other people having fun like and they know that that, that looks like enjoyable. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, scrapbooking stores are made for, made for those people. That's right. We just That's both right. want to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 I yeah. do, <laughs> but I do love though. I mean, I love in your writing how transparent you are about the fact that during some of the worst moments, they were also some of your more sort of comedically fruitful times. Um, So was it, I mean, you've been pretty transparent about your early years of comedy. Was that the same time where you were battling alcoholism? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and also just a note, uh, some of the funniest people are ICU nurses. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Like, just like, okay, I'll just say like when I was doing CPE, CPE was uh, clinical pastoral education where you have to go be a chaplain for a while. I found them terrifying. (laughs) ICU nurses are terrifying. I just tried to stay, like, keep my distance. But I was checking in on this one patient who I was following, and she had... uh, she tried to commit suicide. She took a lot of pills, mm. and she had a brain injury from the overdose. 
and they were keeping her under, you know, yeah. uh, waiting to see what her functionality was going to be. So every day I would check in, like, is she awake? And they'd be like, no. So we didn't know what her functionality was going to be. And so finally I went and I said, is she awake? And they go, uh, they go, yeah, yeah. And I said, so, well, you know what? They go, well, you know, she'll never be a Jeopardy contestant, <laughs> but she'll play a hell of a shoots and ladders, you know? And I was <laughs> I was like, only, oh. only people who are constantly around, yeah, faced with the highs and the lows, and tragedy the and yeah. death, could make that kind of joke. Yes, yeah, I've always had like my real high moments have always been those pre-surgery moments, and uh, you know, I, some of them have been unconscious, like when I grabbed the nurse and pulled him really close to my face for my wisdom teeth removal and said, uh, "Keep the teeth." I'm making a necklace for Tobin. <laughs> They're like, oh. <laughs> and then yesterday when I made those creepy comments to the intern nurse about like, and how do you know how this procedure is done? <laughs> well, the surgeon will claw through my skin like a badger. I mean, I've just been <laughs> so, right. uh, yeah, aware. I think maybe for ministry and with nursing that there's a pageantry that you have to go through Yeah, that also yeah. makes you just aware of the heightened sure. human drama. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. Like I'm, my congregation, there's a there is a lot of just uproarious laughter mm. in the liturgy. Um, usually, when we do something wrong, like we think it's hilarious. Like we're <laughs> anti excellence pro participation, so you can imagine nothing's ever really done that well, and we think it's so funny. But but also they laugh. Uh, on most weeks, the congregation laughs during the scripture readings, to be honest, because yeah. there's so much human folly in scripture. Yeah. And so instead of being pious and like listening to what's the Lord saying to me, <laughs> you know, in a way they're listening for like, where am I in this? Like, yeah. where is the folly in this text? And they just laugh. And there's a lot of humor and sort of what other people might consider inappropriate laughter yeah. um, throughout our life as a community. And it's related to suffering in the sense that I think that because it's a congregation that is unafraid of suffering, unafraid to speak the truth of suffering, Mm. that um, that excavates something out within us that joy can fill deeper, that laughter can go deeper because that suffering has excavated something out within us. Yeah. Um, And I don't, I I can't totally explain how our capacity for, to hold suffering is related to our capacity to experience joy. But man, I, I, I think they're related. Oh, I think that's exactly right. I don't know, like this last month was especially dramatic with health. Oh my gosh. You know, and like the second I got bad news, it was weird, but I woke up the next morning and I sort of felt like someone had slapped me in the face and I felt like, like bright and clear. Yeah. And some of it was, so I had to take this stupid work trip and, um, sorry, wonderful work trip for those that I went with. And I got off the plane, saw a friend and I said, do you want to go visit the world's largest Ukrainian sausage? And they were like, yes, yes, I do. And like, it went right to the love of absurdity, standing in a field, jumping up and down for no reason, throwing a party. I mean, I just wanted to do the stupid and the fun. Right. And yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Like the pain digs something out and then like, yeah, and joy fills it. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about how hard it is to hold on to some of the lessons you learn when you are broken. Because I mean, I know you surround yourself by people you cultivate 
that sense of fragility, I think, in your life in a way that's really beautiful. But I, sometimes I feel like when I go through something awful, it's more like pregnancy and childbirth. Like, it's terrible. I remember it. I'm deeply implicated by these lessons. And then it's over. <laughs> and I, I find it really hard to hold on to, you know, the sense of connectedness I had with other people who are also in pain. Hmm. Do you think we're sort of destined to forget the important things we learn? Um, I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's the hard thing is when, you know, I'll have some sort of aha moment. I'll have a a moment of clarity or something like that. And then nine months later, I'll think of it again for the first time in nine months. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Sure. You know, how much of a capacity for growth could we realistically have? You know, it's kind of like Tide detergent has been improving itself since it was invented. You know, what I mean? new and improved. I don't, I don't know, like, yeah. how much. I mean, I think that my hope is that we grow in wisdom, like that there's wisdom that can that can sort of d- accumulate maybe in our lives. Yeah. Um, that's my, that's, I mean, if I have any hope for humans, it would be that more than the hope being we don't make mistakes or we remember all of our lessons mm. or we're constantly improving like tide detergent or we've, we've undergone the process of our own sanctification so perfectly that, you know, we yeah. don't actually need God anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that's a good Lutheran answer. Why is community then so important in making us all stop being total monsters? Uh, Well, uh, because it provides something we can't provide for ourselves, but then it also confronts us. Like one of the reasons people avoid community is because, you know, other people are disappointing, Mm -hmm. you know, and yet by being in community, we take turns being the ones who are disappointing hmm. and then forgive each other and move on, you know, and maybe it's that guy's day to be disappointing, but next week it'll be me, you know? Yeah. So there's that culture of turn taking when it comes to being the ones who need grace or who are giving grace or who remind each other that grace is a thing, you know? That's why I think mm. communities that are set up like here are the designated helpers and the healthy people and here are the designated, you know, problem yeah. people. Yeah. It's, it's BS. Peelers. Everybody's both. You know, I've seen the more highly functional people in our community have a need met by some of the less functional people in the community. Yeah. You know, and if we tell ourselves a story other than that, we're just not getting it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I I struggle with church. I mean, I had to start a church I'd feel comfortable showing up to, mm-hmm. honestly. But church in general is so limited in the it the way it's embodied and expressed and it it feels accessible only to certain types of people. Like if you happen to have that personality and you happen to have that life story, then it's a great fit for you and you'll feel comfortable. But like, what about everyone else? That's why I'm like, I think House for All Centers and Saints is like, if you took one of those colanders, like a pasta strainer with the little round holes in the bottom, and you put all the Christians in Denver in this, or even the people who are even vaguely interested in Christianity (laughs) in the big colander and 
like the ones that are too like oddly shaped to fit through the holes, <laughs> the ones that are left in the bottom afterwards, right? The Those ones. are the ones, that's House for All Sinners and Sage. You know, they're too sort of oddly shaped to go through the holes. So <laughs> That'd make a nice banner. It's the lumpy church. Oh, gosh. Exclamation mark. Yeah. My dad calls it, he said it's sort of like high church at the Star Wars cantina. <laughs> <laughs> Oboe players, as yeah. far as I can yeah. see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> you know, I um I think for me one of the most painful parts of going to church and being sick is I'm often forced to explain why I'm sick. Like I'm the problem to be solved. I think everywhere I go and every Facebook comment section, it's a lot of everything happens for a reason. Yeah. I I wonder why you think people insist on being so trite about suffering. Uh, because our own fragility is terrifying to us. Hmm. You know, it's hmm. why people who um, are physically disabled are hard to be around because... Yeah. One thing could happen to me today, and I could be physically disabled the rest of my life. And I don't particularly like to embrace that fragility. I like to ignore that that's even a thing or a possibility. Yeah. So it's easier to go, well, there's a reason that's happened to them, right, or whatever. So I think it's like we're terrified of certain parts of ourselves. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, this was a huge thing for me with... Um, which I've written about with, like, why are there so many socially awkward people at House for All Sinners and Saints? You know? <laughs> and I was like, and I'm like, why aren't I attracting people like me? You know, and it wasn't until I was able to really look at my story and myself and things I tried to hide and not show and stuff from my childhood that was really painful and that profound alienation I experienced in my life. Like, when I was able to look at that, I was able to go, oh, well, I have been attracting people like me from the beginning, mm. but it wasn't the, you know, funny, tattooed, mm. sarcastic person. It was the the bug-eyed, sick, painfully skinny girl who ate all of her lunches alone in middle school. Mm. You know, that that's who's bringing them in. And so um, instead of reacting and going, wow, this person makes me uncomfortable, yeah. You know, I, I kind of went, oh, like by loving them and accepting them, I'm loving that, you know, 12 year old girl in me who I've done nothing but try and hide from everyone, you know. So it's hard. I mean, that's hard work. Yeah. So when people are sick, it makes us uncomfortable because we could be next, you know, and we yeah. don't want to, we don't that kind of fragility and uncertainty is is a pretty devastating thing and so we try to cover our ears and go la 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 yeah. you know yeah or love the shiny version of me i really like that this makes me think of all the times in the last couple of years when i've been the most raw and the most exposed and the most vulnerable and i have found it almost impossible then to separate uh, how i see other people from how they see me yeah you know yeah. and in the midst of the most vulnerability I think it does require, you know, the kind of community, the kind of coming alongside. But, yeah, I mean, the kind of forgiveness you're describing in which we take our burden selves to each other and we say, like, I see that. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you um, say to people who think they're too hurt for community? Well, sometimes I'll say vulnerability is invitational. When people have risked telling the truth about themselves in our community, that has been unbelievably healing for other people for whom that thing is also true Hmm. and have not been able to say it yet. So I think that, you know, again, it's the rowing team idea, you know. When somebody says something, like takes that risk, um, and I identify with it, I feel less shame. I feel more hope. Mm. You know, I feel less hidden and alone. And so we do that for each other, you know. Yeah. And I think that's an important piece. You know, it's funny because people will fault me for saying bad words and um you know uh, as a pastor and you know on social media or whatever you're you're supposed to be an example yeah. you know i mean like an example of what like competitive piety or pre- you know, pretending to be someone i'm not what an example i'm like look if i'm an example yeah. of something i'm an example of what it looks like to be in need of grace. I'm an example of what it looks like to have received grace I didn't deserve. Is there something in the midst of the terrible times that someone can say that's especially helpful? I get that question a lot, and uh, I'm curious about what you would say. I don't know. I mean, I can tell you what I said to my daughter when she had her first boyfriend Hmm. last year, and she was really happy. And I said, honey, there's a reason so many songs and poems and movies and blah, blah have been written about this feeling, right? (laughs) Yeah, because it's amazing, (laughs) right? And, (laughs) and, um, you know, if this goes south or if he then hurts you or you break up, there might be a commiserate low to the high you're feeling. And that will feel as shitty as this feels good. And if that happens, you should just know a couple things. Just because it feels bad doesn't mean something's wrong. Yeah. And um, nobody escapes that, Mm. you know? (laughs) Like, this is part of the deal. So um, I don't know. I think that those kinds of ideas, you know, the reason it hurts is because it's painful, right? Not... Like the reason this thing in your life is hard is because hard things in life are hard. Yeah. It's not a spiritual failing of yours that this feels bad, but hard things are hard, period. Yeah, that's, Nadia, that's a perfect thing to say. Mm. In the hospital, I always think this sucks because it's painful. I'm Correct. I'm exhausted because it's exhausting. And sometimes the truest thing we can do for each other is to look honestly at one another's pain and say, wow, I can honestly say that that sucks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it brings me back to my first thought about you. You're someone I really want to tell my horrible stuff to. And Aww. thank God for that. <laughs> really? Hey. I'll hear it any time. I love, I love people's horrible stuff. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. You bet. Anytime. 
Talking to Nadia makes me wonder if we all need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous immediately and just learn some things. Her whole imagination for what church should be like and friendship should be like seems to rest on a couple ideas that are staples for anyone in recovery. First, tell the truth. It hurts, but it also sort of feels good. Tell the truth about yourself and be the kind of person who wants to hear it when someone else says, here is my horrible secret. Second, you're probably useless by yourself. Nadia had that rowing club, her wonderful rowboat of idiots, she said. I had my besties who flew in to save the day. My two best friends from Canada flew down to see me in North Carolina and then drove the seven hours with me to Atlanta just so they could be there when I got my first chemotherapy treatment. Because I was terrified. All I could picture were these awful chemicals pumping into my body and I thought I would immediately never be the same. So they came along for the ride. They brought snacks, and they made fun of the hypochondriac nurse who advised me never to take a nap again. They fixed my hair, and they took pictures in order to perfect the chemo selfie. I needed them to be there and to tell the truth, even if the truth was, oh, honey, yeah, you look awful. But then one of them took out some concealer, and we were off to the races again. episode, I'm going to talk to my friend Ray Barfield. Ray was the best person for me in the worst moment of my life. Ray treats kids with cancer. So somewhere along the way, he had to figure out how to let people break your heart. Everything Happens is produced by Duke University in association with North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Support comes from Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. This podcast is produced by Beverly Abel and Allison Jones. Sound engineering is by Dennis Foley with assistance from Ivan Panarewski. Special thanks to Amanda Height and the Be the Change Revolution team and Random House. And we'd love to hear from you. If you like what you're hearing, please post a review on iTunes. And while you're there, be sure to hit that subscribe button. You can find me on Facebook, always, Instagram, often, and Twitter, every day, at Kate Bowler. Let's chat. Until next time, this is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>